All right, we're in the second chapter of First Peter. Now you do realize what I'm doing. I'm putting you on a par of equality with my male students. I mean, that is really that's a significant. That's significant. So. Your male students? No, I'm talking about my male students at Grace, where I used to, I had mentoring groups. I don't do that anymore uh, for a number of reasons, but, um, you know, and I, I did that for years and years and years. So. You're mentoring us whether you know it. Yeah, but, yeah. What's that? You're mentoring us whether you know it. <laughs> That's it, really, in a way, you're, 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 you're right. All right, now let's dig into this. Um, this passage is, oh my goodness, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Now, if you're following in the uh, note packet, it's page 5, and um, I've outlined this in such a way where we're now in, the plan is the first half of chapter 1, um, the plan is the plan of salvation anchored in the sovereignty of God, his sovereign plan. And verses 13 through 25, the product of that plan. Now we're in chapter 2, the purpose of it. Now, this is the way I've outlined I preached it, and that's how I, you know, the way I preached it. But now we're, we're taking it some details. Grow through the pure milk of the word of God, which we covered last week. And now participation in the temple and priesthood. I didn't know how else to put that. So that's how I put it, uh, participation in the temple of priesthood. But this is a, this is absolutely magnificent. It's filled with deep theological principles and concepts. Now, I, I want to, I want to remind you, I want to remind you of something, and I'm going to do it this way. Um, you have the Old Covenant, and you have the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, and it's, or it's sometimes called just the Law. Now, when you say that, they'd be really, really careful that you thought through how you're using that. But, it, I mean, it's okay to call it that. I'm, I shouldn't get into that detail. That can get confusing. But, anyway, sometimes this is what it's called as well. Now, the New Covenant is a, is a concept that is mentioned in Jeremiah 31. Maybe I'll put that up here. Mentioned in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel <clears throat> chapters 36 and 37. And that, that term, that phrase is used in those places. I'm writing very fast. You maybe can't even read that. That's Ezekiel. So maybe you know, I'll just put this in quotation marks because this is just used. And this is then developed throughout the New Testament. And Jesus, uh, just to remind you of that, I'm sure you, you, you recall that, uh, when your pastor leads you in a communion service, and he says, this is the bread, and you know, maybe talks a little bit about it, and, as often eat it, do this and remember it to me. And then he will say, and now the cup. And if most pastors do this, he will quote from Jesus' words. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now that's extraordinary that Jesus says it that way. 
because when his disciples heard that in the upper room, immediately they would have thought of these Old Testament passages. Because the New Covenant is the phrase in the Old Testament that indicates the dawning of a new era. And what's the, what is the event that marks the bifurcation, um, the uh, dividing line between the old that is passing away and gone, and the new, which is beginning and flourishing. It's, of course, the cross. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The shedding of his blood, the resurrection, etc. So I'm saying all that because in the old covenant, you had the temple, you had the high priest, and of course, all of the I'm not going to write all this down, all of the sacrifices that were involved with it, the Levitical priesthood and all that kind of stuff. Under the New Covenant, do you have a temple? Do you have a priest? But, and so what Peter is doing here, somewhat a little bit like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6 and some other places, there is a temple. There are priests. And there are sacrifices. <clears throat> I'm putting all those in quotation marks. <clears throat> because that's the language that Peter's using here. But remember, this is gone. The New Testament word for this, I hope I can do this without making it impossible to raise. The New Testament word for this is fulfilled. This is fulfilled. So therefore, it's no longer needed. Not bad. It was an evil. Romans 7.12, Paul said, it was good. It was righteous. It was perfect. The problem wasn't this. The problem was us. <laughs> the problem was humanity. So when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood and was resurrected, this was all fulfilled and now it's over. So now the new covenant. You and I live in the era of the new covenant. So what's the temple look like? Who are the priests and what are the sacrifices? That's what Peter's talking about here. You understand it? The answer to that is yes. yes, yes. No. Okay, I just want to make sure. <laughs> because I'm trying to set it up so you understand the really radical nature of what Peter is saying here. Because when he's writing his letter, which as we suggested a number of months ago when we started studying this book, he's writing this in the 60s. Is the temple still there? Yes, the temple isn't destroyed until AD 70 by Rome. Is the high price priesthood still there? Yes. So are they still offering sacrifices? Yes. Now, unfortunately, it's in disobedience because they haven't recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but that's not the point. What Paul or what Peter is doing here is he's saying what certainly the Jewish leadership didn't recognize, that the old is gone. The new has dawned. They just refused to recognize it. <clears throat> so, how does he put it? Verse 4, as you come to him. Now, that's a great way to introduce it. I, again, as you know, I'm reading from the ESV translation. But as you excuse me, come to him. Now the him pronoun takes you back 
at the very end of verse 3. It's the Lord. You have tasted the Lord and seen that he is good. Clearly, Peter is alluding there to Psalm 34, verse 8, which is, you know, this whole section that we just studied last week, these first three verses. As you come to him, a living stone, what this, this, this phrase, I should say really this whole clause, modifies the hymn. The hymn, that's the Lord, the end of verse 3, <clears throat> Peter now talks about him in a different way. A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. <clears throat> Now he's referring, Peter is referring here, of course, to Jesus, summarizing what Jesus said of himself. The living stone over which you stumble and you've rejected when he was speaking to the Pharisees. And God, uh, 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 Peter is saying this whole, this whole role that Jesus fulfills is a part of the plan, chosen and precious. Chosen, eclectos, elect, and precious. A, a wonderful Greek word. I, I mean, it's hard to get one, one English word that captures it all. Chosen, eclectos, and valuable, honorable, precious. You never talk of a stone like that. Why would you talk of a stone like that? Stone is not honorable, valuable, precious. When you're talking about a building stone, because that's what he's talking about, a living stone. So he's just, he's using now, no, I hope I, I don't confuse you here. He's using metaphorical language to talk about Jesus to set us up for what he wants to discuss. What does this new order look like? The old order's gone. Yes, Woody. Uh, I'm thinking that the old is more the law, like you said, and the new is more like the believers voluntarily living the way that God wants them to live. Uh, the old was commanded this was for the believers and he talked about the milk and he would want more and they're talking about the word of course <coughs> uh, I don't know if that's the way you meant that kind of the way I get that <clears throat> I would encourage you to think a little more critically about some of that the way you put it because when you say you know on this that it's voluntarily. It was there, too, in the sense that um, you didn't have to follow the law. I mean, you weren't, you, you, God isn't standing there with a sort of Damocles over you, hammering you. Many people, which is what happened to Israel. You know, they just went through these cycles of obeying the Lord and walking with him in obedience, and then they didn't, and the Lord disciplines them and chastens them, and it gets so bad that he eventually, as he promised he would do, uh, sends them into exile. 
to cure them of this. So, uh, I mean, part of what you said I would affirm, it's just choosing the right language of how to describe the difference is not easy. It isn't. It isn't easy, Woody. And I mean, I, I, I respect your effort to try to summarize the difference. But I wouldn't want you to say that the old order wasn't voluntary in the sense that the individuals who are part of Israel, whether the very ancient Israel at the time of, of Moses or Israel right when Christ shows up, um, it is voluntary. Every morning you have to choose whether you're going to follow the Lord and willfully do the sacrifices and willfully walk in obedience with him. So the, the, the whole um, analogy that Peter is setting us up for, pardon the dangling preposition there, is to understand what this new order looks like. And so he immediately goes in and he first talks, verse, 50, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. That's striking, isn't it? Because he just referred to Jesus Christ in verse 4 as a living stone. And remember, these are metaphors. And you know what a metaphor is, figure of speech. So he introduces Jesus as you come to him, a living stone. Jesus referred to himself that way a number of places in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But in sight of God, chosen, precious, valuable, honorable, part of his plan. And the result is you are living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, right there in that verse, what do you see? A new temple, a new priesthood, and a new sacrificial system. <coughs> but who's the temple? Where's the temple? Where's its location? At a place on Temple Mount? on the east side of old Jerusalem? You're supposed to say no to no. that. <laughs> Where is it? It's in you. You are the new temple. Every believer is the new temple. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but what I'm trying to do is help you to see how absolutely radical that is to talk like that in the early A.D. 60s when that big temple that Herod built is still there on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Although Peter doesn't specifically say that, he's saying that is irrelevant. You are what's relevant. That's stunning. Because... You're part of the new covenant, the new order, the new era has dawned. Jesus' work is done. He went back to the Father. The Spirit has come. By the way, the Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. That's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel 36 and 37 talk about. So this language is just remarkable language. It's staggering language. So where is the temple now? 
dispersed throughout the whole world. The temple is no longer associated with the geographical place. It's the church dispersed throughout the world. And we are the priests of that temple. And we are engaged in offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, if you're jotting notes that spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, you need to write Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is exactly, it's identically the language the Apostle Paul uses. 12, 1 and 2? 12, 1 and 2. If you don't mind me saying so, this is still pretty stunning and radical today. And well, the culture looks at it in a way that's not inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jim. That is really true. It, it really is. This is not inclusive language. I mean, in terms of the broader culture, it's exclusive. But Brother Jim, I know you know this, Christianity is exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's not inclusive language. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is one name under heaven by which men are saved, the name Jesus Christ. But is it available to all? Absolutely. Are there any restrictions? None. You have to pick up the gift. It's there. That's, that's the restriction. You have to, you have to pick it up. You have to pick I mean, it, but it is thoroughly, equally available. It isn't a hierarchy where it's a group of very elite people that find it. I love this. I'm, I'm, my lead pastor had me do a, a whole series on the pastoral epistles to the elders this year. And uh, we're already behind schedule in doing it. But it's been fun because one of the things that Paul does in the pastoral epistles, he keeps using the word all, 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 A-L-L. In Greek, it's pan, pantos. It's for everybody. There is no exclusiveness in availability. It's for everybody. But you have to choose to accept it. So it's not because you're human, you automatically. No, it's what God has done. He's done it all. It's available to everybody, but you have to accept it. It's like any gift. If you don't choose to accept it, it's not your gift. It's still on the table. The gift's still there. You know, it's like it's a stupid way to, to make an analogy, but coming you know, in December, Christmas, you get a bunch of gifts, and you leave one gift unwrapped on the table and never pick it up and go home, and it's still on the table. Is that yours? Have you appropriated it to your life? No. You've left it at the house there, and it's never yours. So you've never taken the gift, so it's not yours. <coughs> now that's, a, that's maybe not a good analogy, but it's the same point. If you never pick up the gift, it's not yours. No matter what somebody does, it's not yours. If you don't pick it up and take it home, it's not your gift. It still belongs to the person who gave it to you. It was meant for you. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, it's there. It's got your name on it. It's, you know, but you, no, I refuse to pick it up. I don't like you and I don't want your gift. Okay. Then it's not your gift. I'm not, you know, I'll take it back. And that's true in law today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, and maybe that analogy breaks down. Really, all analogies ultimately break down, but it's the point. So, what Peter is doing here is he's saying, 
There is a new temple now in the new order. There is a new priesthood. But it's a priesthood of not elites, of the tribe of Levi. It's every person who trusts Christ. And every person who trusts Christ, who is a priest in the new temple of God, is offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And that's what Paul says in Romans 12. Spiritual sacrifices which are good and honorable and acceptable to God. And we have to, we have to, uh, I'm sorry, Joel, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, how, how do you distinguish or define spiritual sacrifices? Obviously, we know they're not living or animal sacrifices, but what would you include in the definition of spiritual sacrifices? Well, we need to leave. I got no. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that you see in like Galatians 5, 22 and 23, because what Peter does not address here, although it's implied because he's talking about the new covenant, is what the Holy Spirit, because we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit and all that that's taught, is what the Holy Spirit now produces in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, you know, all those nine quality traits. Um, as well as the the actions that we do. I, I referred last, I think it was last week here, I referred to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with true and trembling because God is at work within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I, I'm saying all that because ultimately, Joel, our entire life and everything we do and everything we say it's a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. There's Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it's a 24-7 life dedicated to the Lord. It's taking care of everything God stewards you to do. Taking care of your body. Taking care of your relationships. If you're married, your spouse, your children, your parents, your employee, I mean, all of those things. It's being a good steward of everything that the Lord stewards and trusts you with and doing it with integrity. So, I mean, it's, you ask it so broadly, so I'm asking, answering it broadly, but I guess what, in a sense what I don't want to do is just compartmentalize it. Well, I've done this, now the rest is mine. That's not the right way to think about it. The Spirit, you, Paul says that you offer yourself, that's what he says in, in Romans 12.1, you offer yourself as a spiritual sacrifice to God, which is good, holy, and acceptable to him. So it's not offering my time or my food that I say thanks for when I sit down. It's yourself I'm offering to the Lord. And so there's no, there's no compartmentalizations there. Is nothing I'm leaving out. That's why that little book that I now see is gone. But that's why that little book that, that Munger talks about is just my heart, Christ's home. What does Jesus want? He wants everything. He wants to be Lord over everything. 
and even that little room on the second floor with a lock on it, which is what he talks about near the end of the little pamphlet. Jesus says, let's open that. Let's look at that together. Which is, you know. And so it's just, it's, this is one of the, this is what, this is one of the tendencies of ancient Israel to compartmentalize things. Okay, I did my sacrifices. I, I got the kosher meal down. The rest is up to me. The rest is mine. That's not what God wanted. And today, many Christians do compartmentalize their life. Okay, I'm going to church. I pray at my meals. I give grace, thanks to the Lord for my meal. Um, I might go to a Bible study, but the rest is mine. Is that how the Lord wants to look at it? No. But we learn what that means. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you learn what the spiritual sacrifices to the Lord mean. It's holistic. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? You remember his answer. You love the Lord your God, but your heart, the center of your will and your emotional being, your soul, the center of your emotions, your mind, the center of your thought life, and your strength, your body. What is that? Holistic. Nothing's left out. And that's, that's the radical call. Once you pick up the gift, that's the radical call of Jesus in your life. Whether you acknowledge it or not, I'm your Lord. Let's acknowledge it together. Because I'm with you. Well, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I mean, it's that kind of perspective to break down those compartments so that we see things holistically as God wants us to see. I saw a hand up out of the corner of my eye. Jim, first in there, friend. I was just going to comment on the Romans 12.1. I really appreciate what I believe is the um, King James Version, how it ends up. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable spiritual service. Yeah. I think so often we think if I just make a sacrifice, you know, contributions to the church or something like that. We've done something great, but he wants the whole thing, and that's just the reason for the end. Yeah, because of who he is and what he's done for us. That's that I do too. I like the King James on that. That's good. You mentioned too, but our presence here, studying the Word, is a sacrifice suitable to. And we made a choice to come here. Absolutely. We didn't have to come here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jim, you mentioned <clears throat> that uh, there's this room that's locked. And um, you also mentioned that if we ask God to companion with us, lead us in opening that room that's locked, that we can do that with the security and understanding that he loves us. Absolutely. And that we are safe in opening that because mm-hmm. he will give us eyes mm-hmm. to see how and strength how we can deal with that locked mm-hmm. room. Absolutely. And he has a restlessness at heart, and he wants to trust. He wants us to trust him with that, even those things we, that we think we're hiding from him. Yeah. 
that we're really not. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, one of the things that I think about so frequently, Jesus said, I have, you know, if, if you believe in the Son, the Son is the one who makes you S-O-N. The Son is the one who makes you free. And if you be free in him, you are free indeed. And that whole concept, I, I told you, Fred's reading that too, or I, I'm almost done with it now, the last pages, but um, this Making Sense of God book, the new Tim Keller book, uh, he brings that up again and again and again, that real freedom is not found in personal autonomy. It's found in Jesus. That's what Keller so masterfully does in this book. He takes these topics like satisfaction and, and meaning and purpose and identity and all that stuff. And he does all the different perspectives on it and all the different um, postmodern writers as well as other world religions and so on. And then kind of paraphrase it again. Now what I want you to do is I want you to consider the claims of Jesus on this. What's Jesus saying about this? And all he's doing is saying, making sense of God. Consider this. Do these guys really have the answer to this issue? Or does Jesus have the answer to this issue? And again, you have to choose. And it's just so compelling. These were messages he gave in that great center of evangelical Christianity, Lower Manhattan, New York City. <clears throat> All right, now, so far it's 22 minutes after 12 We've done one verse, but it's it's a rich verse. And I hope the way we set it up here, is that clear? No, I mean, I said, and all I'm trying to do is put on the board what Peter is saying here. This is an extraordinary passage. Now, what he does, he, now Peter, what he does is he quotes from the Old Testament as proof for this claim. For, I'm in verse 6 now, for it stands in Scripture. Now I quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Does that sound familiar? That's what he said in verse 4. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's one of those 376 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Very clear. So, and now verse 7, the, the conclusion, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and now he's going to quote another verse from the Old Testament. But do you notice he says something again, rather stunning. So the honor is for you who believe. This is end time language. This is eschatological language. Eschatological just means the end. So honor is for you to believe. What honor? 
Ephesians says that God will hold us up to the angels and say, these are the trophies of my grace. That's honor. Jesus says, and Paul elaborates on it in the book of Galatians, we are joint heirs with Jesus in the coming kingdom. That's honor. Paul says in another passage, we will rule and reign with Jesus. That's honor. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe it is, we will have administrative authority over the angels. That's honor. So Peter, as he ties this thread rather tightly together, because you're a part of the new order. The end of the new order is going to bring great honor for you in the eyes of God. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's one of those things that, oh my goodness, what God has promised to do for me and for everybody that's in his new temple, his church. But did you notice something else that's quite a bit harsh, more harsh, more difficult, more challenging? But for those who do not believe, in any quote from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling. Now he's quoting from Isaiah 8, 4. A rock of offense. They rejected Jesus. See, one of the themes of the New Testament, and it, it's not a very popular thing to talk about, it gets back to the, the term Jim used a while ago, it's not very inclusive. <laughs> But Jesus Christ divides humanity. He really does. Do you agree with that? Jesus Christ divides humanity. And and Keller brings this up again in his his recent book, how often harsh and bitter the language is that people sometimes use when they talk about Jesus, whom they've rejected. And there are a lot of reasons for that, I suppose. But what Peter is doing is he's saying, this Jesus who divides humanity, for those who put their faith in, who picked up the gift on the table, honor. But for those who reject him, they've rejected the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? This new temple. Not the old temple. That's done. The new temple. And that cornerstone. By the way, can, can I can I explain something to you? This has nothing. Oh, I can't erase that. This is kind of interesting. Maybe I'll you won't find it that interesting, but I do it since I find it interesting, <laughs> we're gonna do it. <laughs> but um The term we translate cornerstone 
is really more accurately translated peak stone. Or you and I today would call that keystone. That's the peak stone or the keystone. This is a Roman arch. If you if you ever traveled in Europe or in the Middle East, these arches are in buildings everywhere. The aqueducts all have them. This is how Rome constructed its, its, its buildings and its arches and its architecture and its aqueducts. They discovered that the keystone, the peakstone, absorbs the pressure from both sides and keeps it together. Many, many, many of those, those buildings are still standing because of this. So Jesus is that keystone, that peak stone. Now, there are other places where it refers to Jesus as that cornerstone that you put in the foundation of a building. But in Paul's language, the foundation of the building are the prophets and the apostles building on Jesus and his work. I'm telling you more than you're probably interested in, but it's, it's just interesting the term that Peter uses here. It's an, it's an interesting term. He's that peak stone. And that peak stone, that key that key stone in the building is a stumbling stone to people. It's a rock of offense. Now, in the first century, the earlier decades of the first century, that's the Pharisees, Sadducees, and many Jews. Paul says that to the Jews. The idea of a Messiah dying on a cross is, is a repugnant, offensing, offensive stumbling stone stumbling block. Can't accept it. Besides the rule and reign. How they could conclude that only? No, first he has to die. That's what Isaiah 53 and many other places say. But they skipped that. We want a reigning Messiah. Before he rules and reigns, he's got to die. Now today, remember, that's gone. So now we're, today, Jesus is a stumbling stone to people. Jesus is a rock of offense to people. He really is. You can talk about so many people in a conversation with someone, and then you bring up Jesus. And a lot of people, they don't even want to talk about him. They don't even want to talk about the subject. Because as Peter says, as he quotes Isaiah 4, to the unbeliever, he's a stumbling block. To the unbeliever, he's offensive. Does that, I, I've experienced that multiple times in my life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever experienced that? With family, with friends, business? I mean, it's just one of the, it's one of the realities in Peter is just even in the new era of the new covenant. That's one of the similarities between the old and the new. The Messiah is a rock of offense to many people. So Peter takes three Old Testament passages, as we've now just covered, three Old Testament passages and weaves them together as he talks about Jesus, the rock, a rock of offense, a stumbling block, the key stone, the cornerstone or the peak stone, and then the stone that he lays in Zion, chosen and precious, Okay? Yeah.
it comes out to me that chosen by God and precious to God, and then to, uh, to those who believe it's precious. It puts us in God's family. Yeah, right absolutely. That's the, that's the position we have. Yeah, it, it, I don't think, it, it almost sounds blasphemy, but it isn't. We're, we're encouraged to think, in one sense, Jesus is our big brother. Now, I mean, yeah, yeah maybe yeah, that sounds like 1984 George Orwell book, but Jesus is our, our brother in the sense that he is our, we're in the family of God, he is the one who saved us and redeemed us, we're in his family. That is the family of Heavenly Father of God. And it's, uh, it's, an incre- it's, it, it's just a, an incredible, unimaginable dimension of the grace of God that's been showered upon each and every one of us. It really is. So as he's weaved, uh, weaved, woven, what's the right word? As he has woven these three Old Testament passages together, all pointing to Jesus. Particularly for me, that last one from Isaiah 8, 4, still applies. Now, I was hoping I didn't have to deal with the end of verse 8, but it's not a quarter of yet, so I guess I'm going to have to deal with it. But either... Please, somebody have a long question. <laughs> you know, oh, well, I don't want to. No, go wanna, ahead. Go I, ahead. I wanna, I'm just thinking, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that, um, that, I mean, I cannot see myself doing these things unless he enabled. Because I would not. I would bury my face in the ground. Mm. Mm. I would suspect that most of us around the table would, would would agree with that, be like that, you know. So he will enable us. Yeah, absolutely. Because we absolutely. may not be able to do that. Absolutely. Short questions still have time to <laughs> Now... The end of verse 8, Peter felt it necessary to make a theological comment on what he's been discussing. I wish the Holy Spirit would not have motivated him to do this, but he did. He's quoted these Old Testament passages, particularly the last two. Those who reject it, those who reject Jesus. He's a stumbling block to them. He's a rock of offense to them. They stumble because they disobey the word. The word there is logos, which takes you back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was logos, and logos was with God, and logos was God. Anyway, so they disobey. Now, you have the rest of the clause. As they were destined to do. (laughs) 
Now I must do this on the board. There's no other way to address this now. I hope you recall all of this because when you first read it, you say, "Good night." What? But I don't know how else to address this than to bring up the old railroad track analogy, okay? And remember, the right-hand side of the railroad track is divine sovereignty. And the left-hand railroad track is human responsibility. Or if you will, responsible freedom. Unless you have just started coming here, this should not be unfamiliar to you. So, Peter is trying to summarize for us this interplay and this tension and this, this difficulty that we always have in trying to put human action together with divine sovereignty. And there is, as the word I've used so often, there is unresolvable tension when you try to put these together. Do you understand what I mean by tension? You're never satisfied with, completely with the explanation. And so let's look at the verse again, the end of the verse again. I think in the middle of the track, you put grace in here too. Well, <laughs> yeah, let, let me just quick, because I don't have a lot of time, but you're right. Grace and all the things. But just look at, look at the, the end of verse. They stumble, because he just quoted Psalm 8-4. They stumble because they disobey the word. Which side of the railroad track is that? Okay, this is part A. It's the focus of... Their human responsibility, responsible freedom. They have chosen that. They've chosen to disobey. He is a stumbling block. He's a rock of offense. Therefore, they're choosing a path of disobedience. As they were destined to do. Which side of the railroad track is that? This side. Because God has made it very clear, because he used that word destiny, is very important in figuring out what Peter is saying. God has said, if you reject my son, your destiny is predetermined. Does that sentence make sense to you? Yeah, a lot of sense. If you reject my son, your destiny is predetermined. Where's that adding into? Do you have a verse? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm reading, 
as they were destined to do. In other words, that they are rejecting Jesus and choosing disobedience, all of that with crystal clear clarity is established in God's word and in God's counsel. If that is what you choose, then everything else falls into place. Your destiny is predetermined. You are choosing it, but it's all under the sovereignty of God's providence, and everything about that is predetermined and set. It's not that God is intervening and saying, you are never going to trust my son. I mean, you know, I get to election. And that, I just didn't ask you that. That's another is issue. Yeah. Well, yes, because, see, this is the issue of uh, opening this can of worms, this Pandora's box, whatever metaphor you use, you can never put the lid back on. It just starts and just gets... But the Bible, honestly, men, I mean this, I've studied this stuff for 35 years. The Bible never resolves this with language that's satisfactory. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the Father who chose you before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined you to adoption as his sons. I just quoted those verses. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose you before the foundation of the world, and chose there as eclectos, elect. In love he predestined you to be adopted as his son. <laughs> Jesus said in John six forty four, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Jesus said that. Yes. But, Jesus says, believe and you shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There's one name under heaven by trying to say. So, even though the divine sovereignty wrapped around words like election and predestination, it does not negate the responsibility of the human being to exercise responsible freedom and choose Jesus. You cannot, with human language, resolve that tension. You just can't. I mean, you know, the, now I hope you follow me. The hyper Calvinist dumps everything on this side of the railroad track. <coughs> The radical Arminian dumps everything on this side of the railroad track. And both, both go to an excess that goes outside of Scripture. I mean, the extreme Calvinist almost makes it, it meaning the whole salvation dynamic, into a fatalistic exercise. And the Bible doesn't present it that way. But at the same time, the Bible doesn't present the responsible freedom of the human being is some autonomous being acting on their own over which God has no control, providence, or sovereignty. 
Let me use another illustration, because this is outside the salvation dynamic, but it's the same point. I think I've used this before. Jesus is in the upper room. He's with the 12, and he says, as they're eating Passover meal, tonight one of you will betray me according to the scriptures. Which side of the railroad track is that? The, left. The, the right side, yeah. divine sovereign. It's part of the plan, according to the scriptures, semicolon. But woe to that man, it would be better if he were never born. Which side of the railroad track is that? The left side, the human response. Judas was responsible for his decision to betray the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Can you put that together? In a satisfactory way where words resolve the tension? That we can't we can't just say that God is all knowing. So he knows ahead of time what you're gonna decide. But they don't accept that, do they? The calculus. Well yeah, that's one way to look at it. Yeah. It and it's this is why I don't want to try to get because you just keep well. I mean, it is a perfectly legitimate thing to discuss. That's why you you kind of get that you got the sense I think that I really wasn't interested in dealing with the second part of verse eight. I thought that's what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I just because, but it's it just it, it is legitimate to discuss this. But in summary, because we are near the end here, we're going to have to soon stop. What Peter is doing is he's putting all of this under how he began his epistle. If you remember that, focusing on the sovereignty and providence of God, using words like election or ordination. Remember those? He uses all those difficult words. So now he's back to at the end of this incredibly wonderful discussion about, well, I erased it, but about this new order of things, the new temple, the new sacrifice, the new, the new priesthood and all that stuff. And now he's just saying that even those who reject by willful, conscious, intentional disobedience of what God has revealed, his word, as they were destined to do, I mean, it's just, it 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 creates tension force, theological tension that you, you, you cannot in human words, I've never heard anybody do it, in human words, satisfactorily resolve the tension. So, this is, I my position is what is called compatibilism, which I know doesn't mean anything to you, but... It's, it's, it's saying that from the Bible's pre- presentation of all of these discussions, both divine sovereignty and responsible freedom of the human being are true. Both are true. And you're saying, no, wait a minute. One has to be, one has to be true and the other one's false. That's not how the Bible... And I just quoted the verse about Judas. You have... Divine sovereignty and human freedom, responsible for human freedom, in the same verse. It's exact, they're both there in that verse. It's a very frustrating verse to study when you really dig into it. It's very frustrating. And who remember who said it? Jesus said it. So it's, you know, it's like 
Maybe somebody made a mistake when they copied it in the medieval era or something. Can we ask him to explain this when we get to heaven? Yeah. <laughs> it won't matter then. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't but know. It is, I, mean, I, have, <laughs> I have 9,762 questions I want to ask the Lord. Yeah. This is wonderful. I hate to end the class this morning with, with this discussion. And I, when I say it that way, because it's all the wonderful things we've talked about, you, you, you kind of forget because now you're churned up because of the just the nature of this. It really is. But don't forget how we started and most of the time was on this wonderful part. We're in the new covenant. We're the new temple. We're the new priests. We're offering throughout our life daily spiritual sacrifices to the Lord Jesus that are acceptable to him. Our life is his. Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your, as Jim said, which is your reasonable service. This isn't unreasonable for the Lord to ask this. It's a reasonable service. So think of your life that way, to present yourself daily to the Lord. I'm yours. I belong to you. Every moment of my life today. That's our goal. We're all, we're going to fail at that. We still have that capacity to sin. But our goal, I want to I be a living, spiritual, acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Okay? That's what I really want you to remember as we leave today. <laughs> Let me pray here with you. Lord, thank you for these men and a good study. That, the majestic, lofty language that Peter uses of us as his children by faith, as Jesus' children, by faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, we belong to him. We're the new temple. We're new priests offering spiritual sacrifices to him day after day after day. That's, that is a stunning way to present who we are. One of the many, many, many figures of speech used throughout the Bible of what the church is to the Lord. And we thank you, too, for the the, the fact that we are so privileged to receive the honor from you because we believed we will receive honor we talked a little bit about that another quite remarkable promise of what uh, our future will be when the lord jesus returns for us so lord as we are going our separate ways now uh, it'll be at least for my involvement here it'll be three weeks till we regather again i pray for each man here so give us a good day, a good rest of this day as you dismiss us. And as we always try to remember as we pray together, Lord, help us to represent you well in what we do and say in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.